Well, when I teach, which is occasionally, uh, I've been going through the book of Matthew, and that's where we'll be again today, chapter 4. Just to summarize where we've been, uh, I like to do that because I don't teach all the time, so just to catch everybody up, we, uh, Matthew has been called the bridge builder because it's the first book in the New Testament, and it quotes the Old Testament 125 times, thus connecting the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament fulfillments. And it was written by Matthew to the Jews. And the main point was Jesus is their king, their Messiah. And in Matthew, we see the king revealing his kingdom. And it wasn't what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting this outward political takeover kingdom. And that'll happen. It's the second coming. But for now, Jesus is revealing an inward spiritual heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that you must be a spiritual person to be a part of. The unfortunate thing is, because of sin, none of us are spiritual people, at least not initially, until God gets a hold of us. He works that out. He enables us to be a part of his kingdom through, as we repent and believe, being born again, and we become a part of his family. In chapter one, uh, we studied, we saw the king's credentials, his claim to the throne, his lineage, and also some info regarding his birth and family. Chapter 2, we saw people come in to worship Jesus. And it wasn't the people, it wasn't the Jewish people. It was, it was another group of people, those wise guys from the east. And also we saw the Lord, uh, God protecting the king from his enemies there at the end of that chapter. In chapter 3, we saw... Uh, the heralding of, Jesus, of the king's arrival, first with John the Baptist, the, former, the prophesied forerunner, who um, he had one message, preparing people to come. It was repent. Of course, we talked about the importance of repentance, uh, that we um, come to agreement with God that we're sinners who, deserve to, who are separated from God by our sin and deserve to die and go to hell. And we need to turn from it and renounce our sin and, and be willing to do whatever it takes to change. And that's the preparation for the Lord to come and dwell in your heart like he wants to do in his kingdom. We also saw God the Father heralding and the Holy Spirit heralding Jesus uh, the King's arrival at his baptism when the Father spoke from the cloud and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And also the Holy Spirit coming down in the image of a dove and alighting on Jesus, anointing him to be the King. Um, and then the first 11 verses of chapter 4 we studied the last time I taught, we saw the king tempted and proven worthy. And in so doing, he was tempted by Satan, and in so doing, Jesus set us an example of how to overcome temptations ourselves. First of all, his first line of defense was he, knows, he knew the word. We've got to know the word of God. That's what he used in, his, in the battle against Satan and the temptations. Number two, we need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know that we are, we are a part of it. We are a child of God and see ourselves that way. And also he showed us that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, not on our flesh. We'll fail if we do that. Which brings us uh, to the remainder of the chapter where we'll see the king establishing his base of operations for his ministry. And we'll start uh, reading today in verse 12 of chapter 4 of Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, 
he departed to Galilee. You know, John was being obedient to what the Lord had called him to do, and he ended up in prison. We follow Jesus because he's the truth, because he's the only way to heaven. But you know what? We'll have tribulation because of that in this world. It's not going to be easy, Street. If somebody told you that, they were wrong. And we'll talk more about this in chapter 5. But John, John said, I must decrease. And we see that happening as he's put in prison after confronting King Herod over his sin. And we see Jesus begin to increase as, as he's going to do, picking up where John left off. And so the king leaves the wilderness of his temptation and heads to the north, to the sticks, to the backwoods, to the area of Israel that he will make his home base for the bulk of his ministry. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus went to his hometown first, Nazareth. Then he heads over to Capernaum, which will be his headquarters, a beautiful place by the sea. Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. You know, this region there, it's, it's two in the northeast section of Israel. These two tribes made up, made up a section of territory. And it was, about, it was made up of about 200 villages, history tradition tells us, of about 15, at least 15,000 people. And, and the area up there, probably a, a population of around 3 million people. And a lot of Gentiles were there because these tribes were usually the ones first invaded. When, when, the, when countries would come out of the north, they'd, they'd invade. And so it, it led to there being a large Gentile population there. And we see in this, in verse 16, uh, this prophecy quoted here, we kind of see maybe me and you here, as it speaks of Gentiles. That's us who sit in darkness. Hey, that was me. And the king, the light of the world has come. And we have seen him and responded to his call. It's a cool thing. 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sound familiar? In fact, the exact words that John the Baptist was saying, that was his message. And that's what Jesus starts off, because that is the first word of the gospel. Turn from your sin. It's a prerequisite to the gospel, to agree with God and to come and to turn from our sins. So important. It, again, it prepares our heart for the Lord to come and dwell there. And, and the three musts, you must repent, you must believe in Jesus, you must be born again. Verse 18, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to him, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and follow him. You know, these guys would now go from catching fish to catching men with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would be evangelists. And Peter would evangelize the masses. His first two sermons after Pentecost, 5,000 people were converted. Amazing. But you know, we can't all be Peter. We can't all be Billy Graham or Greg Laurie of the Harvest Crusades. 
But we can be Andrews. Andrew, we see quite often bringing people to Jesus one or two at a time. And that's what, hey, God is pleased with that, guys. That focus. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, this is not the first time Jesus had met these guys, as the other uh, Gospels tell us. But it was the time when he called them to follow him, in their case, in full-time ministry, as disciples. And they drop everything, what they were doing, and they follow him. Man, that's faith. And that's how we should respond to the Lord. When the Lord calls you, be willing to go. You know, the follow me is the universal command here. Where the Lord leads you is different with each individual. Some he leads into full-time ministry. Others, I would venture most of us, he says, hey, follow me by getting back to work. You know, my story was like that. I, I, uh, when I got saved, I was working for a large corporation back in 1987. And, and a lot of pressure to make sales. And, and uh, we were taught to do whatever it takes to get the sale. Lie, cheat, steal, unethical environment. I mean, these guys would go and steal our competitors' garbage to get leads. I mean, it was just like craziness. And when I got saved, man, I knew, you know, that's not right. And I say, Lord, I, 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 I can't, I can't keep being a salesman. You know, I, being a critic, I just don't think I can. And I remember, and the Lord spoke to me in my heart and he said, that's exactly why I want you to stay there. I want you to show people that you can be a Christian and be a salesperson. And you know, I did. And, and, and I determined to be faithful and ethical and do everything. And it did cause me tribulation. Let me tell you, my bosses didn't like it. That's okay, because God blessed me. I actually got fired from a job, finally. You know, I was like the top rep, but they fired me just because I was being ethical and refused to do something that they wanted me to do. And I was following Jesus. And it's okay, because God provided. He put me in business for myself. I was free to do all the things that I wanted to do for the Lord now and didn't have anybody on my back. And so God always, when you follow God and do what he calls you to do, he will always provide for you. And so... The main focus for all of us is to respond to his call. Because God wants us to work. We see lots of people calling scripture, and all, and, and all of them are, are doing something. They're working. You know, and it's been said, it's easy to steer a moving ship. Somebody who's just sitting still, man, you can't steer them many places. So, you know, we need to make sure we're moving. You know, if we don't have a job, you know, just pray and take it to the Lord Try to serve him in ways you can with your freedom, but, you know, make your job trying to find a job. You know, and our jobs, especially, they become, well, our ministry. That's how we need to see them as Christians. You know, and stay-at-home parents, you know, you may have the most important job. Because Malachi chapter 2 verse 10, uh, 15 tells us that God invented the family to produce godly offspring. And what a great, the main thing is to be faithful in what God's called you to do. Do it with all your heart. And if God wants you to do something else, let him work the deal out. He'll, he'll direct you. He'll put you exactly where he wants you to go. Uh, especially like me when I got fired, man. I thought it was a disaster. Started crying, you know, because I had done everything I could. And the Lord spoke to me as I was pulling out of the gate of the place. 
And he said, don't cry. I did this. I allowed this. I got something else for you. And he will. Just, just follow him and God will provide. You know, we're all in the ministry. All of us. Not just the preacher. Every one of us are ministers for the Lord. With different activities. Uh, we see here with, the, with these guys, uh, Peter and Andrew, fishing. James and John, mending. We see kind of a cool picture of different parts of ministry. Sometimes, man, we're fishing. We're fishing. We're trying to bring, catch people for Jesus, bring them into the family. Other times, we're mending, aren't we? People are in the family. They're hurting. Sin has scarred them. They've got struggles with sin, and we're trying to help them. And so, you know, the main thing is to really focus on just serving the Lord and whatever He's calling you to do in that situation. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were going off with Jesus in what amounted to basically a seminary. You know, Rabbi Jesus is calling his group together, and as they go, he's going to teach them along the way. It's an incredible method. Just hanging out with Jesus. It's, a, it's an incredible seminary. You know, I, I love that verse, Acts 4.13, when the Jewish leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Well, they, they, were, they marveled, and they realized, listen to this, that they had been with Jesus. That was their seminary. That was their training. And you know, I say that to you. Seminary is not required of you by God. You know, just hang out here in this fellowship. We're going verse by verse through the Word. And, 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 we're, and just pray and fellowship and worship with brothers and sisters and Jesus through His Spirit. And over a period of time, you will have what amounts to a seminary degree. That's what happened with me. And you know, I also, when I first got saved, I thought, in the church I was in, you know, if you really got born again, they'd go, that boy's on fire. And then they say, hey, he's going to preach. You know, and so I thought, oh, you know, I got to get training. I got to go to seminary. I got I to learn the Bible, you know. And so uh, I started looking into it, and I quickly found that it wasn't a great situation to go and learn the Bible. Matter of fact, uh, it wasn't really good back there in the 80s going to seminary. I, there were a lot of people who were saying Jesus wasn't the only way. And, and two of my mentors uh, basically said, you better know the Bible before you go to seminary. And I was kind of like, that's why I was going to seminary was to learn the Bible. And uh, during that time, my pastor went on sabbatical for the summer. And, and a friend of mine who had been one of the guys who had kind of prayed me into the kingdom, he invited me to his church, Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. And I went over there and really enjoyed the verse-by-verse teaching and so I got a chance to sit down with the pastor one day at lunch, and I told him about what these guys had said to me about knowing the Bible. He said, you know, that's true. He said, but if you come to Calvary Chapel, uh, we study verse by verse of the Bible, and after a period of time, you will have what amounts to a seminary degree without all that stuff over there that they're dealing with. You know, now, praise the Lord, they've cleaned up the seminaries to some degree, at least in that denomination that I was in at the time. But, man, I felt the Lord calling me to change, and I went to, started going to Calvary Chapel. And it was cool. They were starting on Genesis chapter 1, the first Sunday that we started attending there. And over a period of time, 10 years, we, I studied verse by verse through the whole Bible with my pastor. And, you know, God did his thing. It says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according. Man, God started, stuff just fell off my life. I wasn't even trying and going, oh, i got to fix this. It just happened as I went through the Word. And he equipped me, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're complete and fully equipped for all ministry. You know, and so I just encourage you guys, get in, you know, get into the Word with us here. If not here, get into the Word anywhere. Because as, as we said, we only got one book. 
And it, it, hey, man, it's the truth of life. And so, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Teaching and preaching first. That's what lays down the foundation for everything we do. For healings, for casting out demons, and everything else. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. After the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were added to the church in one day, verse 42 of that says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's the Word of God. Fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and then many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. You know, teaching today is often left out in a lot of churches that really focus on seeking signs and wonders and things like that. And we get all types of crazy things going on out there, guys, because they don't have the word. We've got to have biblical foundation for everything we do. And we want all, we want all the Holy Spirit has for us, but we must have that foundation. Verse 24, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him, from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You know, these people were coming from a hundred-mile radius. They were walking. You know, that's amazing, being drawn to Jesus. You know, I, I used to complain because I had to drive 30 minutes to church. Now, these people are, man, they're coming. Something staggering is taking place here. We can't even imagine the power that's going out of Jesus. He's healing everybody. He's casting out demons. He's doing all things. And so this big, this big crowd gathers. Jesus, now the king, takes the opportunity. He's going to deliver his manifesto of the kingdom in chapters 5, 6, and 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, We got a huge mixed crowd formed here. Common Jews, religious leaders, Romans, Gentiles. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. He sits down and he puts forth his vision of the kingdom. And it was a shocking. It's going to be a shocking vision. Totally different. Great contrast to the people and the religious system's expectations. And you know what? So much better. Just so much better. The, this new kingdom Jesus is ushering in. And when he sits down, these people come to him. They're, they're called his disciples, which means learner. They're looking to Jesus as their rabbi, which means teacher, that they're following, and they're looking for spiritual truths. Now, as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we must remember going in that, this, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's not a new set of external rules to live by. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. To me, it's like saying, man, I live by the law. Romans chapter, you know, the Jews proved nobody can live by the law. You know, Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says that the law was given to prove to us that we can't keep it. 
You know, and so it's not, we, we don't need to look at the Sermon on the Mountain that way. You know, the Jews were blind to the fact, and, the, and their traditions made them feel like they were keeping the law. But Jesus, in the second part of chapter 5 here, is going to blow their traditions away. The Sermon on the Mount, if you're looking at it like a new law, well, let me tell you, it's like the law on steroids. It's, it's I mean, it's intense. I mean, he says things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, those guys spent every second of their day just focused on keeping the law. They couldn't do it. And then he says in verse 48 of chapter 5, he says, and I'm quoting the ESV here, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey, guys, that disqualifies all of us. We can't, we're not perfect. You know, and, and remember, this is a spiritual kingdom. But sin, because of sin, no one is a spiritual being. And so we've got to be born again. And the only way we can live anything according, you know, for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes, to be what Jesus wants to be, is to be born again. Where God, by His Spirit, writes His laws in our minds and our hearts, and by the power of the Spirit, enables us to live. And then we can truly, uh, you know, begin to live out the Sermon on the Mount. But it's something, see it as something God is going to do in your life by His Spirit. Not by the striving of your flesh. We talked about that last time. Now in verses 3 through 12, Jesus gives us what are known as the Beatitudes. In Greek, the word beatus means blessed, or oh, how happy. He is saying that peop the people who the Beatitudes describe will be very happy. Now, he's not saying that you'll never be sad, because this sinful world will make us sad at times. But citizens of God's kingdom should be the happiest people, shouldn't they? And I'm not talking about the legalist, who is always self-righteously condemning and judging everybody or self-condemned themselves. I'm talking about a real born-again believer who's following Jesus, walking in God's grace, seeking to love people, you know, seeking to be led by God's Spirit. And the deal is, we should be the happiest people, but we aren't always, are we? Why is that? Why are we not always? And, and I just put for it in the context of kingdoms here. I believe it's because we're focused so often on the wrong kingdom. Let me say that again. We're not happy because we're focused on this temporal kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 15.9 tells us, I'm quoting the King James here, If in this life we have hope in Christ only, we are of all men most miserable. You know, happiness is focusing our hope totally on the eternal kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to reveal. That's what Psalm 84, verse 5 says. It says, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is a spiritual journey to a holy place. And us Christians, born here, we're on a spiritual journey. Where? To heaven. Heaven is where it's at, guys, for Christians. Nothing in this world, in this lifetime, on this planet, is it. Heaven is it. 
And we become frustrated and we become miserable, as Paul said, when we look to the things of this world, our relationships, our possessions, our jobs, whatever, you name it, hobbies, anything in this world to be it. Oh, this is going to make me happy. It won't. And there's always something missing. There's always something that, you know, I'm, I'm just missing something. And when we become confused regarding this, misery. But when we understand and we practically embrace the truth that heaven is where it's at for us Christians, man, it sets us free. Our heart, man, heaven is where our heart should be. It's where, it's where all the blessings are. It's, well, it's where our joy is, our treasure, our rewards, our true family is going to be there who follow Jesus. And when we do that, man, it enables us to stop taking everything so seriously. Like, if I'm going to mess up, I'm going to no, just follow Jesus. He's going to get you to heaven. It's going to be all right. Love everybody along the way. That's the Christian life. You've denied yourself. You're living for Jesus. That's it. And that's where the joy is. That's where the happiness is. That's when you'll be happy. Now, Jesus is putting forth in these first, the Beatitudes, it's the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. The emphasis here is on being, not doing. It's on your character, not your conduct. It's on who you are, not what you do. The truth being, if you be, then you do. If you are this, then you will do that. That's how it works. And I love this. When I learned to say it's like one of the coolest things. The best way to look at the Beatitudes, I believe, as characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are true citizens of the kingdom Jesus is revealing will exhibit in some way all of these. It's very, it's, it's a cool thing the Lord has given us here. And, and I say to you, if a person doesn't exhibit these characteristics, well, they need to question whether they're really a part of God's kingdom. Now, the first characteristic we're going to look at here, the first beatitude, is the foundational one. And the rest build off of it. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor. When Jesus says poor, he's not focused here on outward earthly poverty. Though, we studied, when, when Tyler took us through uh, Luke, uh, in chapter 6 of Luke, we studied that there is a blessing actually in material poverty. It's been said, and, and God isn't calling us to be poor. He's calling us to contentment. But it's been said of the Christian, hey, the richest are not those who have the most, it's those who need the least. And we learn contentment. Let me read you what Paul said about this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's important. You know, because when I first got saved, I, I thought, I, I read that, oh, you got to be, you, you, I had this poverty theology, like you got to get rid of all your stuff. And the Lord said, no, if you do a good job as a salesman, you're going to do well. You know, and, and, but I was like, oh, and that, no, be content with what is. Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So be content with what God's called you to do. And, and, and don't put your faith in your stuff or what you're doing, but just, man, just use your stuff for the glory of God. You know, but here, he's not talking about that kind of poverty. He's talking about inward spiritual poverty, which is in great contrast to the pride, the arrogance of this world. The world says, hey, we are good. I was taught that you know, in school. We are good. The born-again Christian, the poor in spirit, says, no, we're not. Not compared to God. You know, poverty of spirit is a result of a true, real encounter with God. <laughs> it is the consciousness of self when we see God. Like in Isaiah 6, the prophet saw God and he said, woe is me. I'm undone. And Peter had a similar experience when the Lord almost sunk his boat with this incredible haul of fish. And he, and, and he realized Jesus was God and he came to him and he said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Poverty of spirit doesn't come from comparing ourse ourselves to other people. You compare yourself to me, you may look pretty good. But if you compare yourself to God, different situation. We have a revelation of God, and like Isaiah, we're undone. You know, a person who is poor in spirit knows they are bankrupt spiritually. They know they are so spiritually poor that all they can do is beg, with nothing to commend them to God at all. And it's a necessity to becoming a part of God's kingdom. Why? Because we can't maintain the belief that we can be good enough to do what it takes. Because you'll never receive what the Lord has to offer you. If we could be good enough, guys, Jesus would not have had to die. And so, we are all sinners. It's very important to embrace that. And God won't recognize the works of our flesh, our filthy, their filthy rags, he calls them. We'll only respond to honest, humble people who know their only hope is to cry out to God for mercy. You know, when this happened to me, man, I remember in that parking lot, in that church in Roswell, Georgia, man, just walking out of the building, just started weeping. I knew I was lost. Man, I knew, you know, I just kept saying I'm no good. And I was, and I was right. Jesus says about this person, oh, how happy is that person? Why? It doesn't make sense, does it? Not to our worldly perspective. It makes sense because that's the place where you can begin to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. When you realize you need a Savior. Amen? You know, in that parking lot, I was mourning. And that's the natural kind of progression here from the first beatitude to the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Basically, blessed means what? Oh, how happy? So he's saying, oh, how happy are those who mourn. That's an oxymoron for you, isn't it? It's crazy, but it's true. We mourn in response to death. And chapter 6 of Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. And so we see all this sin, this, this death caused by our sin in our relationship to God. In our relationship to other people, our sin calls. When we see it, we mourn. 
And the Greek word here for mourning is intense grief. You know, have you ever sinned and you just, whenever I sin, when, if Jesus is in you sin, man, it just kills you. I can't, you know, I can't stand it. I mourn over it. I just like cry out. And I, believe me, I was intensely mourning in that church parking lot that day. I knew I was dead spiritually and my sin had brought death to all my relationships. I was mourning in the spirit, if you will. <laughs> oh, how happy you are. Why? Second Corinthians 710 for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. <laughs> Jesus says we will be happy when we mourn because we will be comforted. When we see our sin and mourn, like the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus comes to us and says, I don't condemn you. I died for you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> that is awesome. And we repent and believe. And man, in response to his goodness and mercy, he forgives us of all our sins, past, present, and future. And here, listen to this. He sends his spirit, also known as the comforter, to indwell us. And we're born again to his family. And we're comforted in our relationship with God. And by the fact that heaven is our home, and we're not facing the eternity of hell anymore. And God promises us when we do that, he will restore the years that our sin has destroyed. He'll do that. And Joel, Joel prophesies that in chapter 2 of his, of his prophecy. Isn't that cool? We mourn over sin. We repent, believe, and born again. We're crucified with Christ. We die to ourselves, and we become the next beatitude, which is meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness has been defined as showing patience and humility, goodness, um, gentleness and mildness, power bridled and brought under control like a broke stallion. Again, meekness is not being a wimp. It is a person who is no longer focused on self. He or she understands their selfish sinfulness and have said no to it. I'm done with it. Someone who is meek, as it says in Luke 9.23, is denied self has died to self, and is not, self is not the priority anymore. I, I like Pastor Chuck Smith's definition of meek. Put a little hyphen there, a little dash in between the two E's. Me. <laughs> Unlike the world, who's all about fighting for their rights, the meek are no longer for that selfish guy who caused all that death, or girl who caused all those, that sinful girl who caused all, that, all those problems. Instead, you know, who was fighting to get their own little piece of this planet. Happier the meek, Jesus says, who have stopped fighting for that plot of, plot of land on this earth, and incredibly, the Lord says, they're going to inherit the whole thing in the end. Someday, we will reign and rule with Jesus Christ on the earth. While those who refuse to follow the Lord, no matter how much they possess at some point, they will lose it all in the end. Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that cool? And we can be meek because by faith we know the Father's going to take care of us. Amen? Amen. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. 
You know, when a person is emptied of self, become poor in spirit, mourns over their sin and been comfortable, repented, believed, been born again, and become meek, then they begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The reason people don't hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness is because they haven't been emptied of self. You know, too often we feed our selfish cravings for the spiritual junk food of this world. <laughs> Don't have an appetite for the righteousness of God and his kingdom. Be like me, my wife making her tacos, which I love. But on the way home, I stop at Crystal and get filled up. And I get home, she goes, oh, look, here they are. And I go, eh, you know, it's terrible. Why would we, and we do that, don't we? Spiritually, we do that all the time. You know, we, we, we get filled up. We have no appetite. We got to repent and reject these, curl, these, these carnal urges, which is hard to do without God's help. Well, we know that, but he gives it through the new covenant, writing his laws in our minds and our heart. You know, our struggle under the old covenant was not that we didn't know what was righteous. We did. The law told us what was right and holy. But because of our sinfulness, and selfishness, we did not hunger and thirst for righteousness, did we? But now because we're born again, we want to be righteous. We hunger and thirst for it. And through His Spirit, man, I love that song we sing. If I'd been more organized, and man, that song, uh, this is the kingdom. Remember that, that line, it just goes, they will be filled. Aren't we? Aren't we filled? It's just awesome to be a part of God's family. We are able, we are enabled to live righteously, to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by the Spirit. And our happiness comes as we live righteously and are filled with Jesus' presence and His love. You know, many live unrighteously and wonder why they're not happy. But Jesus here, He's showing us that there is a connection to hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to living righteously and happiness. Happiness and living righteously are connected, guys. You know, and we go, oh, well, think about your sin. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, we all need mercy. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And we know what we deserve, right? <laughs> But because God loves us, He has mercy on us. And He wants us to love and show mercy to others. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive your, give men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You know, and who am I? Who are we not to show mercy when we're so totally reliant on the mercy of God ourselves? But now as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, we want to show people mercy. Don't we? In our heart of hearts, it's there. Blessed, verse 8, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the Greek, the word pure is the word katharos. I think that's how you pronounce it ethically, which means ethically free from corrupt desire, from guilt, 
been cleansed. And katharos is the root of the word catheter, which, not to get too graphic, is an instrument used to help us clean out the body. True? We have corrupt hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And Jesus said about our hearts in Matthew 15, 19, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Because of the sin in our hearts, we're not able to look upon the Lord. We can't see Him. We're unable to even consider, as John 1, 5 says, to comprehend Him. Our sin has blinded us. We're spiritually blinded by the ruler of this world in our sin. Our hearts need to be cleansed, to be made pure. And praise the Lord. We know the Lord accomplishes that through the blood of Jesus Christ as we repent and believe and are born again. And the Lord comes to dwell within us. And we behold His glory. And we know Him personally. We hear His voice. We see Him leading us. And we follow. And with a purified heart, our motivations totally change. We go from the bottom line motivation, corrupt motivation of the flesh, which is self, to the most pure motive there is, love. Romans 5.5 tells us that this agape, unconditional, totally unselfish love of Jesus Christ has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Amen. John 13.14 tells us that our birthmark is to have this kind of love for each other. And is a characteristic of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven and the motivation for the next beatitude. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hey, can we all agree this world is not a peaceful place? Hey, nations are against nations. I tried. I've tried. I can't. I can't. There's no time in history that I know of when there wasn't at least some type of armed conflict between nations. It's not a peaceful place. And individual people are in conflict with each other too because of the world, the earthly kingdom, us people who inhabit are filled with lust, greed, pride, hatred, cynicism, selfishness, rebellion, sin. And then there's the influence of Satan and his, co and his cohorts. And people can be so cruel to each other. Nobody cares about anybody else. Everybody's looking out for number one. And in light of this, we see the next defining characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is that as much as depends on us, we want to be at peace with everyone. That's what God calls us to in this unpeaceful world. You know, chapter 12, verse 18 of Romans, Paul tells us, calls us to, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. And he also calls us in chapter 4, verse 3 of Ephesians, he says, look, we need to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But it's not a peace at all costs. It's a peace that comes with the gospel. You know, we won't compromise on that. But some will never accept the gospel, so they will never, they will never have peace. But the citizens of God's kingdom... We'll have experienced the love of God and the peace of God, and we want to share it with others, don't we? Before we're born again, we have no peace. Not with God, we're at enmity with Him. We're like His enemy. 
We're at odds, and we deserve judgment. And then, having been justified by faith, made just as if we'd never sinned, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1 tells us that we have peace with God. Praise the Lord, the war is over. We surrender to his lordship. He reigns in our lives. And not only do we have the peace with God, we can have the peace of God as we mature and grow in faith and learn to rest in him. It is a peace that will guide us. As Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 tells us, as we learn to focus on the Lord and rejoice in him alone, to be content with what is, because Jesus is with us, not to worry about anything or fear, because the Holy Spirit will, will empower us and enable us and guide us. And that we learn to be thankful. We learn to pray about everything. Then, God's peace that can be not be shaken by circumstance or by perplexities of life. That peace, as Philippians 4 verse 7 tells us, is that is beyond our understanding, surpasses all understanding. That peace will come and it will guard our hearts and souls in Christ Jesus in this unpeaceful world. And we have, we have that state that Gail Irwin used to like to say, the big, ah, we can have that peace. Everything's going to be all right in the Lord. And because of the love that God has placed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we want that peace, peace with God and the peace of God for other people to have it as well. And we become, well, peacemakers. If we're going to be a peacemaker, the first and more, most important thing we need to do is share the gospel with people so they can come to a place of peace with God themselves. 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Lord calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, imploring people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Then, when a person is born again into God's family, we seek to help that person grow up in Christ so they can live in that peace like we do. That passes all understanding. And as citizens of God's kingdom, being in this unpeaceful kingdom of this world, we desire peace even with our enemies. We pray for them. We love them, even though they hate us. And oh, how happy are we, because we are being obedient to and pleasing the Lord, who died for us, his former enemies. And he will use us as peacemakers in our enemies' lives, to bring peace between him and them. And oh, how happy are we, especially when our enemy becomes our brother or our sister in Christ. Amen? You guys tracking with me on this? This is, this is such a blessing, guys. We follow the example of our peacemaker God who loved the world and gave his only son for it. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who willingly went to the cross. We follow their example and we reconcile. We bring peace to situations. And it will be said of us, there's something different about her. There's something interesting about him. And he, they're like, it's like they're the sons and daughters of God. But unfortunately, 
there are those who will be blinded by the evil one and in bondage to their sin who will oppose us. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, if we're truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven, walking in righteous truth, we will have conflict with the citizens of this world. They won't understand us. They'll think, think all manner of evil against us. They'll align themselves against us. They'll seek to attack us, silence us, cancel us, eliminate us, treat us badly. You know, John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. When that happens, be of good cheer. Why? Because persecution for righteousness sake says that we're living righteously. And that we're pleasing God. Rejoice in that, guys. Verse 11, Jesus says, We can rejoice when people say false things about us. Because we know God knows the truth. In verse 12, Jesus says, We can be exceedingly glad because this is how they treated God's servants in the past. And we'll have a similar reward to what they do. So, there are the Beatitudes. The characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And they're in great contrast to the world, aren't they? To the Jews and their religious system. Man, poor in spirit versus proud in spirit. Mourn over sin versus rejoice in iniquity. Meek will inherit the earth versus aggressively self-focused on getting their share. Hunger and thirst for righteousness versus a lack of awareness of sin and of God. Merciful versus no mercy. Pure in heart versus a heart that's desperately wicked. Peacemaker who see God versus aggressively, they're aggressive to conflict and blind to God and persecuted for righteousness sake versus unrighteous and persecuting the righteous. Citizens of God's kingdom are humble, motivated by the love for God and their neighbor, especially their enemy. Citizens of this world, of this world are motivated by pride, love of self, hatred for other people. And as we said, man, this is a great way to examine yourself. Look at these things. Hey, do these speak of me in my life? They'll help you to see if you're in God's kingdom or not. So Jesus follows the Beatitudes with two more attributes that define who the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is and their roles that we play. Salt and light. Matthew was written to the Jews, and at that point, all of the disciples were Jewish. Salt and light were the roles the Jews were supposed to be fulfilling in the world at that time. But they had not done that. So Jesus comments on that and gives warnings. This will be instructive to us as citizens of God's kingdom as well, as we step up and step into those roles ourselves. The citizens of Jesus' kingdom, also known as the church, comprised of born-again believers, both Jew and Gentile, would become the salt and light. Verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, 
How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, salt added, well, it adds flavor to food. As Christians, we are to have the same effect spiritually on our environments. We are to pour the mercy, love, and grace of God into every situation that we're in. Salt also preserves and heals. And we seek to be filled with the Spirit and to have a preserving and healing effect on all situations we're in as well. Jesus says, if we're not, if we lose that godly influence, he says we're good for nothing but to be thrown out with the garbage. The Jews had lost their flavor, and they would soon be tossed out, trampled underfoot. That's what happened in, in 70 AD when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem and sent all the Jews into exile. And for 2,000 years, they'd been trampled underfoot. If we lose, we saw last weekend, our flavoring effect, the grace, mercy, and love of God. You know, we saw like the Laodicean church becoming lukewarm. Jesus will spew us out of his mouth. You know, how do we become lukewarm? How do we lose that salt-like, grace-like flavor of Christ? It could be dif different from each one of us. And the best, well, the simplest thing to do is just to ask Jesus. What's up with you? Get on your knees, humble yourself before God and ask him to search you. To show you if there's any wicked thing in you and lead you in the way everlasting. And then get up and do what he shows you. I love the advice Jude gives in verses 20 and 21 of his letter. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of God unto eternal life. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In John, the Gospel of John, chapters 8 and 9, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But here he tells us, we're the light of the world. That was supposed to be true of the Jewish people because they had the word, the covenants, and the promises, but they weren't. They had hidden themselves. They had put themselves under a basket. They weren't up on the lampstand for the world, reaching out to the world. We, the born-again citizens of God's kingdom, we have become the light of the world because the light of the world, Jesus, now dwells in us. And we need to shine for Jesus. We need to put ourselves on the lampstand. We need to live for Jesus and for his glory and not be hidden. And people will notice when we do. And they'll be drawn to the light within you. And we need to put ourselves in situations where we can share the gospel and the love and the mercy and the grace of God with everyone around us. We need to be humble in doing it, always pointing to God and praising God, not seeking the glory for ourselves. But when people praise us for the things God will do through our lives, we always need to deflect to Jesus. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit alone deserve the glory. So salt and light, the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourn, mer uh, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness sake, 
something to examine ourselves by as Christians to know where we're at regarding God's kingdom for functioning as a citizen of God's kingdom. You know, living the Christian life, it's been said it's the hardest, easy thing to do if you try to do it in your flesh. Amen? But it's also been said it's the easiest, hard thing to do if you do it in the Spirit. I love Jeremy Camp's song. I've been trying to get Tyler to sing it. I don't know how long. Up here. Same power. I love that song. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That causes the dead to wake. That moves the mountain. And causes the raging sea to cease. Man, that same power lives in us. And we need to tap in. You know, when we're born again, we need to walk in the Spirit. And the question is, am I? Are you?